G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. The 2020 Summer Series on Vision Christian Radio. Oh, the way I explain why the world is so sceptical, and so at least we can understand where our non-Christian friends come from, I say, imagine I tell you that last night a UFO landed in my backyard and a little green man got out and he invited my wife and I into the UFO. So we went in and he took us to his home planet, Jupiter. He showed us around. We had a meal with him and then we jumped back into the UFO. And because of the whole space-time continuum thing, we went through a time portal and only one second of Earth time went by. I usually ask people who he believes me, and almost no one believes me. And I say, well, I've got another story for you. 2,000 years ago, God sent us his son, 100% God, 100% human at the same time, born of a virgin. And when he was alive, he raised a dead girl back to life, gave a blind man his sight again. More than that, he died on a cross for us. If we believe this, God will wash away all the sin, guilt, and shame in our life. More than this, he rose from the dead three days later. More than this, if we believe this, his spirit will live in us right now. More than this, one day in the future, he will come back and set up a kingdom here on earth. And at that moment, our bodies will rise from the grave and be reunited with our souls. Then I say, well, who he believes this story? And at this moment, the Christians very nervously put up their hands because they realize the second story sounds even more unbelievable than the first story, yet we believe it. And I say, well, this is why um, the Christian story, as true as it is, is unbelievable in nature. Then I then ask the Christians, well, why are you happy to believe the Jesus story, but not the UFO story? I say, actually, a lot of it comes down to three things. Um, your personal experience, your community, and your facts, evidence, and data. So most of us don't believe there are any facts, evidence, or data to support the UFO story. Most of us have had no personal experience of a UFO, and most of us don't live in a community where friends we trust also believe in UFOs. But, as I tell you the Jesus story, most of us believe there are enough facts, evidence, and data to support the Jesus story. Most of us have had a personal experience of the Jesus story, and most of us belong in a community of trusted friends and family who also believe in the Jesus story. And I say the reason why our friends don't believe in Jesus isn't because it's not true, but because by and large, they actually don't belong in a community of other trusted friends and family who believe in Jesus. So a big reason for our friends not believing Jesus is they don't have any Christian friends. I, I love reading the New York Times and I love the articles in there, but someone said last year that no one on staff in the New York Times knows any Christians. They have no Christian friends. So it's not just the Christians who are in a bubble, it's our non-Christian friends who are in a bubble. And that's why the Jesus story stays so unbelievable for them, because they just don't know anyone else who believes the story. So when someone does some further study about faith and they Mm. get a hold of the Bible, and uh, of course it's not just the Bible, but when we start talking about 
archaeology and, uh, you know, mm. the study of mankind uh, and history. And we start to get a little bit deeper. This is where we start to uncover some of those facts, evidence and data that you're mm. talking about. Uh, because uh, this facts, evidence and data sounds to me like it's pretty important to actually have some of that on hand when someone has a question about our faith. Oh, totally. And and all three play an important part. You know, so facts, evidence and data, personal experience and community. But by and large, unless people you know, have trusted friends, they, they explain away the evidence. Or they, uh, the, or they find some other explanation. So say, you know, imagine the UFO is my backyard right now. Uh, most of you wouldn't be bothered to check it out. And if you did see, say, no, there must be some other explanation. So in my book, I argue there is a very important place for facts, evidence and data and the role of the Bible. And we need to keep returning to it. But also knowing the important role that trusted friends and family play in determining how people interpret that data. But you're right in that most of our friends actually haven't explored the Bible. They dismiss the Bible without having even read it. And this is where I find the, the stories from the Bible to be so amazing now. Uh, last year, I had to do the Bible in one year. I did that program with Alpha, and it was fantastic. And I just, you know, you rediscover stories in the Bible that even us Christians aren't used to hearing about. And I catch a lot of Uber these days. And with Uber, you know, there's always that polite conversation. You ask them what they used to do before Uber. They ask you what you do. And because I'm in professional Christian ministry, uh, I, I say, well, I'm in professional Christian ministry. And there's this always awkward silence. And then they ask me, well, what is it you Christians believe? And at this moment, I love to just give them a story from the Bible. Sometimes I tell them about Jesus turning water into wine, and that just blows them away. They have no category for that story. Or tell them the story that Jesus tells about the Pharisee and the tax collector, or the story about the vineyard workers who work different hours, but they all get the same pay. And I say, you know, this is what us Christians believe. And they have no category for it because it completely disarms them. Uh, they have never heard stories like that before. So I find stories in the Bible to be very good facts, evidence and data that we can go to. So, Sam, let's talk about this word sceptical because we're increasingly in a sceptical world. Uh, It wasn't always the case. People were not always sceptical about the uh, the existence of God and uh, the fact that uh, you know He has influence in our lives today, but it's become increasingly a point where people have become sceptical. How do we get this way? Oh, several things have happened. See, I'm actually old enough to have gone to the Billy Graham crusade in the 70s, and I remember it, uh, it was a very different time in Australian history. This was the 1970s. Billy Graham could get up and just give a 20-minute talk. And that was enough information for people to understand the gospel and to convert and believe and give their lives to Jesus. And I think it's because people were church, even though they weren't believers. That they were church. They had access to scripture at school. I remember when I went to Sunday school, in a class of about 10 children my age, there was only me and one other boy who was a Christian. The rest were non-Christians who had been sent there by non-Christian parents. And so everyone was church in some way, so there was enough Bible gospel information. So when Billy Graham comes, uh, you know, people know what he's saying and there's enough information to understand and believe. Also, we also make fun of Billy Graham for, you know, he has that famous line where he invites people to come forward and then he says, the buses will wait. And we think that's such a funny thing to say. But now he's realized 
people came to Billy Graham in buses. They didn't walk in off the street by themselves. They came from a church community, even though they weren't believers. So I think what's changed is people don't come from a church community. They have no Bible basis, so they don't know what we're talking about. So the language and the words we use just sound like gobbledygook to them. But another big thing, and I explain this to my Christian friends, is in the last 10 or 20 years, the storyline for the West has changed. The Western storyline now goes like this. It goes like this. We used to believe in God, but we also used to believe in witches, fairy godmothers, and unicorns. And then the scientific revolution came in the 1600s. It taught us to think for ourselves. It freed us up from traditional authority, like churches, governments, and parents. And we have to be brave enough to think for ourselves be true, be real, be authentic, and just be who I want to be. And so when we, as a well-meaning Christian, come along and try to tell our friends the gospel, they think we're threatening to drag them back, kicking and screaming, to the dark ages, to the age of superstition, where we were the authority oppressive figures. So what I'm trying to say is in the Western storyline, we've actually somehow become the bad guys. And that's led to the scepticism in that not only do do they not know what we're talking about, but they fear what we're talking about as if we're the bad guys and we're the oppressors and we're going to drag them kicking and screaming back in the dark ages and they're no longer going to be free. We're going to rob them of their freedoms. Well, it's interesting as you're describing all of that because sometimes people frame that idea as being in an enchanted world of the past uh, and now there's a disenchanted world in the present uh, and some things that made us disenchanted, as you're describing, you know, even the rise of technology uh, that, uh, that, and the rise of knowledge and the fact that we're all so uh, interconnected now and there's so many more stories to tell, the idea that somehow or other the enchanted world has gone away. In actual fact, the enchanted world is still there, isn't it? Because uh, yeah, there are still yeah. incredible things happen. And even in the idea of a transformed life by the power of God, uh, mm. This is an evidence that there is this level of enchantment that is still there. And, of course, in many other cultures, that's the, as the case as well. So we've become disenchanted. We don't believe the supernatural stuff happens anymore. Mm. Oh, totally. Oh. Like, um, and so with the Western storyline that has set us free to think for ourselves and be ourselves, it's actually led to a lot of isolation and loneliness in many forms. So this is a great irony of technology. It's got us more connected than ever before, but it's got us more disconnected than ever before. People are lonely, they're isolated, they have no go-to set of friends, people who they can ask favours from, or people who can look after their kids. And we can push this even further. Um, There's a book by James K.A. Smith, How Not to Be Secular, and he's actually summarized this massive work by Charles Taylor called A Secular Age. And they argue, and I think it's totally correct, that the secular world lives in what's called an imminent frame, meaning it says there is no God, there is no supernatural, there are no miracles, we're just atoms and molecules, we're just another species of animal on this planet, get over it. But it doesn't live like that. It lives as if there is a supernatural, or what they call a transcendent because we talk about hope, we talk about purpose, we talk about meaning. Uh, And these are transcendent things which only God can give us. So what I argue for in the book is 
every human, no matter how non-Christian, how separated from God, every human is still in the image of God. Every human, according to Ecclesiastes, has a cry for eternity. And so we're actually all crying out for God. A bit like what Augustine said, we all have a God-shaped hole, but we have these existential cries that we cry out for, and we're trying to fill it with other things. So what we can do as Christians is to say, hey, I know what you're looking for. You're looking for purpose. You're looking for meaning. You're looking for fulfillment. And and it's amazing. In the non-Christian world, there are all these words coming up. Each year, there's a new buzzword. It could be well-being. It could be happiness. It could be flourishing. But they're all transcendent existential cries. And we're saying, well, you're actually crying out for Jesus. You're like the woman at the well who's looking for living water. Only Jesus can fulfill your, your deepest cries. And I think... Uh, that's what we can tap into with our secular world. They they say they're secular, but they don't behave. They don't live as if they're truly secular. They live as if there really is a God that they're crying out for. A biblical perspective of life, culture, and current events. The 2020 Summer Series on Vision. Yes, I think so. So really, we're looking for common ground. We need to say something to say to show that we hear and understand where they're coming from, basically get them nodding their heads. So the, whatever we say first, they will say, yes, yes, you're true. That is me. That is my life. That is what I believe. So Timothy Keller says we have to enter their world first. We have to enter their culture, enter, enter their storyline. Some stage later, we can challenge their storyline. And after we've challenged, we can give them Jesus as the fulfillment to their storyline. But we need to enter first. So we see that with Jesus at the woman of the world. She comes looking for water. So he says to her, you are looking for water. So he enters the storyline. Then he challenges it by saying, but your water will make you stay thirsty. And then he gives himself as a fulfillment. But I am the living water and you'll never thirst. Or we can see that with the apostles when they preach to the Jewish uh, religious people in the book of Acts, they say, you guys were looking for the Messiah, and they quote the scriptures, and they would say they've entered the storyline because the audience would nod their heads to go, yes, 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 we were looking for the Messiah. But then they challenge it by saying, well, he came, but you didn't believe him, you rejected him, you crucified him, you have a problem, and then they give Jesus as a solution, but he's the one who will rep- uh, forgive your sins if you repent. Or we see that with Paul in Athens in Acts 17, so to a pagan audience who don't have the scriptures, who don't know better, who have idols, he begins by saying, you have idols, you are religious. And they would have nodded their heads saying, yes, we are religious, we have idols. And he quotes their text back at them, he quotes a poet, a songwriter to them, so they nod their heads. But then he challenges them by saying, but hang on, you have an idol whose name you don't know. How can you worship a God you don't know? And then he gives Jesus as the fulfillment. Well, there is a God who loves you, who makes you, but one day will judge you. His name is Jesus. Uh, this is the guy you need to follow and worship. So we see that sequence there. We enter, we look for common ground, get them nodding ahead, saying, yes, that is me, that is my life, that is what I believe. But then we challenge to show, huh, you have a problem, you have a deficiency, something's not going to work in your storyline. And then we'll give Jesus as the fulfillment to that storyline. Living water for the woman at the well. 
the Messiah you're waiting for, for the Jews, and also the God that you must worship to the pagans in Athens. Sam, let's talk through some of these things that are important to Aussies. We can talk about what the Bible says, and we can talk about times past when people had a different idea of what was true and what was real. But what are the biggest things that we ought to appreciate from having this faith in Christ uh, that come to us today, which others who are rejecting or sceptical about faith are missing out on in their life. Uh, what are your thoughts? Well, my thoughts are, as I said, so people are so post-Christian, so post-church, so post-reached. Um, it's almost like we had to start all over again. And so I think a big thing for us is... We, evangelism for us is a lifestyle change now. It's more than just a conversation we work into, a uh, lunchtime conversation. It's more than just an event we tack onto our church calendar. It's those things, but it's more. It actually has to become our lifestyle. So I think there are at least three things we need to do for our sceptical friends. Number one, we have to introduce them to our Christian friends so that we're not the only Christian friend they have, but so they also belong in a network of friends who are Christians. So my wife and I would love to matchmake our non-Christian friends with Christian friends. And so if they can belong in a community where they, they have more than just two or three Christian friends, the Christian gospel becomes way more believable. So I call this merging our universes, because as Christians we have two universes of friends, Christian friends and non-Christian friends, but we need to deliberately, proactively merge the two universes so our non-Christian friends also have a rich variety of Christian friends. The second thing we can do is explore creative ways to do hospitality. Uh, hospitality is everywhere in the Bible. We're just not used to seeing it. So um, as a kid growing up, I never used to notice roof racks because my parents never had roof racks. And that's because Asian parents don't need roof racks because they don't surf, they don't camp. But now that I've bought roof racks, I noticed they are everywhere. How do I miss roof racks? Almost every car has them. And it's the same with hospitality. It's everywhere in the Bible. Almost every New Testament book talks about it, and it's not just the words, it's the ideas. And hospitality is how we merge our universes and we open up our homes and we create what I call private spaces where people feel safe to talk about worldview and religions. And then now that we've opened that space, number three, the third thing we can do is, in addition to all our other ways of telling people about Jesus, is tell stories about Jesus. I managed to mention this in the previous half hour. And stories just completely disarm our uh, non-Christian friends because they, they're not familiar with these stories. You can't argue against a story. And then in the story, we're actually giving them the person of Jesus, actually meeting the person of Jesus as he is, uh, a real-life human being who is a son of God, and he comes across as a person that they can know and trust. And they might drop their suspicions and scepticisms about Jesus. Is it a fair enough thing for us to say, Sam, that when people have moved to this sceptical position, people who don't have faith in Christ, uh, the illustration of darkness and light is very important, mm. I imagine, here, because as people who are believers in Christ, we say we're in the light. 
But for those yeah. who are not, they're in the dark. And when you're in the dark, you can't see that you're not in the dark. You're just in it. Uh, the darkness is, in fact, dreadful. And I know people have that as part of their testimony. This is what I was in before. Now I have the light and things have changed. You like to discuss what is the alternative worldview. We talk about a Christian worldview and all of those things, the meaning and the purpose that we have and the freedom that we have in Christ, which is wonderful. The alternative uh, you describe as a pleasure-pain worldview. Uh, the idea that, uh, you know, that you get into uh, sins and that might be pleasurable for a season mm. and then there are consequences to those sins uh, that really bring out the pain that follows. Uh, there is a different worldview people are living in in this day and age. How do you describe this difference between what it is uh, to be a Christian and what we have to offer as opposed to what those who are sceptics don't have? Yes, so the Bible gives us many ways of explain, explaining sin and salvation. And so one way traditionally has been we have sinned, we're guilty, we have broken God's laws, so God now will justify us, he will forgive us. Another way the Bible often explains sin is you fall short of where you want to be, you fall short of where God needs you to be, but Jesus now will lift us up to where we need to be and where God wants us to be. So that's another way. One other way I've explored a fair bit is I use the shame on a model, which is there in the Bible, where, and this is what the apostles use usually to the pagans in the book of Acts. They say there's a God who loves you, who made you, but you're not honoring him. You're not worshipping him. And so there's shame in our life, and we have shamed God as well. So we need Jesus uh, to restore us and to restore honor to God as well. It's interesting, whenever I speak to high school students in a chapel service, if I try to go the traditional way, and nothing wrong with the traditional way, it's, it's biblical, it's true, but if I go the traditional way where I say, you know, God has laws, you've broken one law, you've broken all of them, you're guilty, you need forgiveness, you need to repent, they're not listening to me uh, because of their distorted understanding of Christianity. Uh, they're, they're not listening to me. But if I come through a different biblical way, I say, you know what, there's a God who loves you, who made you, He's given you everything in this life that you enjoy, but we don't worship him, we don't honor him, we don't love him back. We have shamed this God. Oh, every eye is looking at me at that moment because they sort of get what I'm saying uh, because they have an honor system now in our post-Christian, post-modern world, and they get that if there's a God who loves them and made them, they have dishonored this God. So I find that really works as well. And if I was to go the pain-pleasure way, I say, hey, we're all living for happiness. We're all living for pleasure. But pleasure by itself is empty and unfulfilling. And it, in the end, would destroy us if we keep looking for it. It will never fulfill us. Uh, it will never be what we think it is. So we end up enslaving ourselves because whatever we live for owns us and will destroy us. But there's a Jesus who sets us free from this. So I could use freedom as a salvation metaphor, and I find that really, really works well as well. So what I'm saying is the Bible gives us a rich variety of ways of explaining where we fall short of God's glory, and it gives us a rich variety of ways of explaining how Jesus saves us and restores us, and I explore these other ways, and that seems to have good traction in today's Aussie society. 
A biblical perspective of life, culture and current events. The 2020 Summer Series on Vision. Oh, totally. And it's interesting again here we see that we really do have two audiences, whether we like it or not. We have our traditional modern audience. So that would be people of my parents' generation. And for them, it was really about searching for evidence, searching for truth, searching for proof. And, that, and that's what really resonated with them. But we also have a second younger audience, you know, the millennials, the postmoderns, the post-church. They're also searching for freedom and meaning as well as truth. So it's interesting, they're searching for two different things. Jesus will give it you know, to both audiences, but they're slightly different searches. So Lee Strobel's book is fantastic. I still remember when I was in Chicago and my professor recommended it to me, so I bought it, lapped it up. I loved it. But there's another book that's only just come out this year. It's by Abdu Murray. He used to be a Muslim. Now he's a believer in Christ. And his book is called Saving Truth. And it's interesting, it's similar to Lee Strobel's in that it's about a journey to belief. But it's a very different journey because he's looking for freedom and meaning. And he's speaking to an audience that's also looking for freedom and meaning. And he's saying, you know what, you as non-Christians, you believe in freedom and meaning. But if we're just atoms and molecules, if we're just another species of life on this planet, any talk of freedom and meaning is actually meaningless and confused. You can only have freedom and meaning if there's a God who loves us and who made us and he sets us free he makes us to be free beings, and he also tells us what we're living for, what our meaning, purpose, and hope is. So we're after these things, truth and meaning. They're complementary. They're two sides of the same coin that Jesus gave us. But it is interesting. We do have two audiences, the modernity, traditional duty audience, and they love the truth and the proof and the evidence. But there's a younger postmodern, post-church audience. They're after much more freedom and meaning, I think. Uh, wonderful thoughts in all of that. Uh, we are talking about your book called Evangelism in a Skeptical World. Let me take you back to the book because there is a chapter in your book that has what you call six strategies for everyday evangelism. And uh, one reviewer I note uh, said this should be compulsory reading. And I haven't read it myself, but I want to ask you about it. Six strategies. Uh, what sort of things do you talk about in your book? Oh, Okay. Number one, I've mentioned some of these already. We have to merge our universes, get our Christian friends to become friends with our non-Christian friends and merge our universes to make lifestyle changes. Uh, number two, I call it the coffee-dinner gospel sequence. So rather than worrying about how am I going to tell my friends about Jesus, just begin with how can I get them to have coffee with me? How can I get them to invest like 10 or 20 minutes with me in public space making light conversation, and bit by bit that will merge into a dinner where we'll be in private space, and now we can talk for one or two hours, and conversations will go from interest now to values, values to worldview, and this is where gospel opportunities can turn up. Number three, we need to listen to them first, hear them properly, hear, understand, and feel where they're coming from. Uh, and then number four if I can remember what number I'm up to. Number four is we need to share our story as a story. They're going to ask us, well, what do you believe in? Why are you a Christian? And that's where we need to learn to how to share our gospel, but through our story as a testimony, how we journeyed into belief and the difference that God makes to our life right now. Uh, number five is tell a story about Jesus. You know, And I've been saying this over and over again. Traditionally, we've been taught to give points about Jesus, and that's good. 
but he comes across as a point rather than as a person. Tell a story about Jesus and he'll come across as a person they can trust. And they'll have no category for the stories that we tell. It will just completely disarm them. And, you know, I can't remember what number six is now. Uh, <laughs> okay, no, 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 that's, long, that's all right. Leave a little bit of curiosity yeah, there sure. because we yeah, might be thinking right. if we've got all six points, we might not need to buy the book, but I will be encouraging people to get a hold of it. <laughs> I better buy the book myself. It's like clickbait, six things, you know, to help you tell your friends about Jesus. The sixth thing will shock you. Not even Sam Chan can remember what it is. <laughs> but let's uh, go with point number five here just for a moment mm. because you're talking about telling stories about Jesus. Yeah. And uh, for those who uh, are listening a little earlier, you were saying you can tell the story about Jesus healing the blind man or raising a little girl from the yeah. dead. Uh, and if you tell that story, you immediately challenge this sort of non-supernatural worldview and you bring into this whole, as you say, it, it disarms people because they don't know how to respond, uh, but they don't, want to, they don't want to say, I don't believe that's true because you believe that's true. In actual fact, what you're stating is a fact and really there's lots of great historical evidence that there's truth in the way that the Gospels tell these stories. So if you tell the story, you open a, a big conversation, you open the door to faith in their own heart. Oh, totally. So I'll give you one example. If someone says to me, how can a loving God send people to hell? How can God, you know, just not accept me for who I am? I'm immediately on the back foot now. You know, (laughs) I have to dig my way out of a hole, which I will be able to because, you know, uh, but another way is I immediately tell them a story. I say, hey, you know, Jesus tells a story about hell and I tell them a story about the rich man and Lazarus. And they listen along, and at the end, I will throw it back to them, and they have to ask the question, answer the question. So, so I will answer, well, what struck you in that story about what Jesus said about hell? Do you think, you know, why do you think the rich man is in hell? According to Jesus, how do you not end up in hell? And, and the story now sets the agenda, rather than my, my friend's question setting the agenda, I shared early in the half hour, I was in an Uber ride, and this woman said to me, well, you're in professional Christian ministry. What does your life look like? And I told her the story of Jesus turning water into wine. I said to her, why would Jesus turn water into wine when everyone's already had enough to drink? And I said to her, it's because it's an image of what life with Jesus will be like, both in this life and the life to come. So if you think by following Jesus, you will miss out. No, it's the opposite. By not following Jesus, you will miss out on on a full and eternal life. See, again, the story disarms them and the story sets the agenda. Before you go, thanks for listening. There's lots more great audio on demand, or you can listen to us live at visionradio.org.au. And remember, Vision is listener-supported. Your donation, large or small, will help us continue connecting faith to life for hundreds of thousands of people across Australia and around the world. Learn more or donate today at visionradio.org.au.